Um, the first, we have three chapters that we're dealing with tonight. And the first is about the yugas. And the second is about, um, you know, whether symbols are just an, a projection or a truth. And the third is, uh, what is the Hindu way? Philosophy, religion is very interesting. So, um, the first section about the yugas, how many of you are unfamiliar or, or not really knowledgeable about the yugas? Patrick and Peter probably. Okay, the others, this is sort of like, it's a bit of a split class in that respect. So I'm going to have to explain them in more detail than some of you may need in order to make sure that those who don't understand them really grasp it because it's an incredibly important concept. The way Swamiji brings it up in this book is he's, he's trying to lay the basis for the fact that, um, that something very ancient can be very wise and more wise um, than we are now, even though the measurements that we're accustomed to using for advanced civilization are not in evidence, if that's the way to say it. And, and, and so he's laying this foundation, which is also, um, in many ways, in a very interesting way, it was one of the fundamental things, among many, that this line of masters came to bring to the world was an understanding of these yugas and an accurate understanding. Yuga means ages, really. That's all the word means, Y-U-G-A-S. It's just a Sanskrit word. It's one of those words that um, there's really no English equivalent exactly. You can say ages on earth, but then you have to sort of put out all these other conditions, whereas yugas is a word unto itself. Yugas refers to this great, these great cycles of time, the specific designated periods, and what that consciousness is around them. Now, um, the basic premise of the yugas is simply this. Brenda, if you were not exactly behind Lee, then I could enjoy seeing you. Just move to the left. That'll... No, and that, now you've blocked Rick perfectly. So Brenda has to just move over just an inch. What I have is Lee's head with this Oreo of Brenda's hair, and, it's, and I know she's back there. <laughs> there you are. That's much better. Thank you. Um, uh, the basic premise is this, that whereas in the West and the anthropo- uh, anthropological explanation of the advance of civilization is extremely linear, there's this concept that, you know, we used to be primitive, and now we're not, and it's been the sort of straight upward cycle, and where we stand now represents the apex of civilization, and and we're just chugging along and getting better and better. First of all, I think this is an extremely depressing concept, if this is it. You know, this is like not something that you want to write home about if there was anybody to write home about. Wow, look how far we've advanced on our planet. It's definitely true that gadgetry is really, you know, going whole hog right now, and it's just quite fun, all the stuff that's being invented and how small it all is and how nifty it is and all that stuff. There's no question that technology is having a big time. There's so much else to life than that that we seem to be losing rather than gaining in many different ways. Now, the Indian concept which is also shared by many ancient civilizations, just doesn't happen to be shared by Western American civilization at this time, um, is that it hasn't always been a simple linear progression. That on this earth, and we're talking, when we talk about the yugas, we are talking about the, the 
the, uh, what you would call the overall level of consciousness of this planet. We're not talking about individual souls, individual saints. We're not talking about creation in general. We are just talking about one planet in all of creation that's just this planet right here. But the concept is that um, the, evol- that the refinement of civilization and consciousness on this planet it has not been linear, but is circular. And that there have been high ages, that, that it goes in a, a, a descending and then an ascending a, a circle like this, and then it reaches an apex, and then it begins to decline again, and then it rises up. And so at any point where you're standing, if you could look far enough back, you would realize that there had been higher ages on this planet, or um, lower ages if you're going up, depending on where you are in that cycle, and that it just it's a constant flow, that it never sort of just goes forward and stays there. Now, of course, this is a much more consistent point of view with everything else that we see in creation. Everything else in creation, nothing ever just goes and goes and goes and never comes down again. We have winter, we have spring, we have summer, we have fall, and then lo and behold, we have winter again. And then in the dead of winter, you know that spring is going to come, and you just sort of keep going around in the circle. We have youth, childhood, youth, old age, death, and then there's childhood, youth, old age, and death. It's just constantly sort of going around, whether even if you don't believe in reincarnation, you sort of see just as one generation is passing over, the other is coming up. Just this last weekend or two weeks ago, David and I were invited to perform a wedding for a, a, a young couple early 20, mid, mid-twenties. And uh, they, it was a very small wedding, and it was most, most of the guests were the friends of the couple. So as we were standing up to do this wedding, and I was trying to think about the things that I would say, there was no ballast in the room. <laughs> there was David and I, who'd been married for 27 years. There was another couple who'd been married almost exactly the same length of time. There was one man who'd had a long marriage, but he was now widowed. Um, And uh, that was about it. Everybody else in the room was young. They were either unmarried, about to be married, hoped to be married, or just married, and nothing else. And I I rarely had such a sense of being on the other side of some great divide. Usually, I sort of feel just part of whatever's going on. And I did feel part of it, because I don't identify so strongly with my age. But I, I said, in fact, standing up, I felt like we were on a launch pad. We hadn't really gone into orbit, but the fuse was definitely lit. You know, there was just this tremendous sense of getting started, which is very different than the perspective of having done. But you could just feel, like it, you know, it was like looking in the mirror. You could see all the energy and how it was going to go again and again. So the question always, when we think about that which is unseen and not necessarily easily perceived by the senses, is the question as to whether or not we can draw from something we know and extrapolate from that something that we might not be certain of, but that seems probable. Now, the concept of the yugas, there's many, many ways to prove it and talk about it, but I'm not going to make such an effort to try to persuade, because those sources are available, some Swami writes in this book, just more to sort of understand what the implications of it are. And the basic implication is talked about. And see, what's interesting about this is that because the according to the way Yogananda explains this, we are just coming out of the, lo- the lowest age on the planet. You know, in, in ancient times they would call it gold, silver, 
bronze and copper, I think is how the iron, the Iron Age. Iron, bronze, gold, uh, silver and gold. And that would be the ascending ages. The Indian system is Kali Yuga, Dwapara Yuga, Treta Yuga, Satya Yuga. Dwapara simply means second, Treta means third. Um, Kali is the darkest age, the age of matter. And the way they describe it, it's the age of matter. And then matter, um, the understanding of reality is that this world is material. And everything that you see matter, and matter is reality, and that's during the age of matter, everything is heavy. Uh, the, the, the greatest power of um, the human body is the only form of energy available. Um, the, if you want to express the greatness of God, you build an enormous church. I mean, like a really big one, because the idea is that if God is big, then he must be huge physically. So there, there you go into these great cathedrals and you, you get the idea of the majesty of God because the ceiling of the cathedral is so huge and so far away from you. And, if, and when one town wanted to prove that it was more pious than the other town, it built a bigger one of these. This is just sort of the way um, people think in a materialistic age. Even when the um, other kinds of energy began to come in, it's just an interesting fact, the energy was measured in horsepower which was literally what they meant. Like, how, how strong is this engine? Well, it can pull, it can push as much as five horses could pull. And, and so we still talk about horsepower, even though nobody has any idea how much a horse can pull anymore because we're not relating to horses. But the only, everything is physical, and form is a fixed reality. And, and it can't change. And, and so therefore, I'm born in this religion, this is what my religion is, this is the dogma, and if this dogma is true, then that dogma can't be true. If my religion is right, then yours must be wrong, because if everything is fixed and material, things butt up against each other. There's no way that anything can blend. It has to be separate, and nations are separate, religions are separate, male and female are in their position, and they follow it, children behave in a certain way, all the things that used to be true, right? And then as we move into a more subtle age, what happens is that the understanding of matter begins to um, waffle. And we move from the age of matter into the age of energy. And Sri Yukteswar explains that the nadir of Kali Yuga was 500 uh, uh, AD, after Christ died. And that what happened was Kali Yuga was descending down to that point, it hit the bottom, and then it became Kali Yuga ascending. We're still in the age of matter, but before we were getting further and further and further into it. You see, Jesus came at the, about the most terrible spot there was to come in, which is why I'm pointing out this has nothing to do with individual self-realization. This is about the overall level of a planet. So individual souls could always transcend it. It's just the background of the planet that they incarnate in, and it informs their message because it has to do with how receptive people can be, what they could say. In the time of Jesus, he had to withhold tremendous amount of information from all but a few. He had to speak in parables. He had to hint. He had to imply that there was something but not say it because the, the mass consciousness was simply unable to receive it. And in fact, so shocking and terrible was his message that he was crucified because his more expanded view was such a threat to the rigidity of the times that they just had to eliminate him. And then it got worse after that. And so those who were serious about spirituality withdrew from society altogether. There was just no point. 
There was no point in trying to do a good work in the world. The world was just too gross for it. So it was the desert fathers, and it was the cloistered monasteries, and you had this very extreme picture where if you were at all serious about spirituality, you had to repudiate the world altogether. So you have the girls you know, sneaking out in the middle of the night and cutting off their hair and then gripping the altar rail and declaring to their family, I will not marry, this is what I'm going to do. There was no thought that you could just sort of be very spiritual and just live normally in the world because the form was too rigid and because the times were too gross, just as simple as that. But then we hit the nadir of that and then we were still in the material age but things start lightening up slowly by slowly. And in the year 1900, 70, uh, uh, 1900 precisely, uh, in 1700 there was a shift. There's these little transition zones in the yogas. It's not worth all the details. But in 1900, it, told, it shifted, and we shifted out of the age of matter, and we moved into the age of energy. In 1700 it began to shift, in 1900 it really shifted. Now if you think back about what's happened in, our, in the world culture since 1900, you can see that the accelerated pace of change has just been overwhelming, really. I mean, Swamiji once was lecturing like this, and he said, almost nothing that you see around you could have existed even, or did exist, you know? Just the video camera, the lights, the, um, the microphone system that we're using, the synthetic materials around us, just all kinds of things. It just wouldn't have been there in that form at all. It's all been very, very recent and accelerating so. And one of the primary characteristics is that there's a dissolution of the rigidity of form, an understanding of the more subtle nature of matter, and a, a, a much more subtle understanding of sources of energy. People joke about the fact that the computer that put the first you know, satellite into orbit you know, filled, uh, there's more computing power in the wristwatches that you can buy today than there was in that thing which filled two rooms or something like that. My facts might be wrong, but the spirit is right. You know, it's just like it gets more and more subtle and more and more dynamic. And, you know, one of my friends has one of those, probably an iPhone. You know, he was just doing everything on his telephone. And another woman, she was just conversing with her daughters who were traveling here. And, oh, yeah, she's taking off on the airplane now. And they were talking back and forth. And nobody thinks anything of it. It's just there's all these subtle ways of breaking down the material barriers. I mean, it used to be impossible when you were in one part of the world to just talk to someone in the other part of the world by phone, by webcam, by text message, by email. Just We're all just because the forms and the rigidity of, of um, space is just beginning to dissolve. So, and, and even more than that, we're now in an ascending cycle. And what that means is that consciousness is going to become more and more subtle. So when Paramahansa Yogananda comes to teach now, as opposed to when Jesus came, he's not crucified. He's not yet welcomed as he ought to be, but at least he's not crucified. He's persecuted a little. He's sued a few times. He's slandered in the mail, in the press, you know, a few things like that, but doesn't begin to approach what happened to Jesus in that respect. And also he's able to speak much more openly. He starts talking about Divine Mother. He starts initiating people into Kriya. He starts talking about the law of miracles. Even in his best-selling autobiography of a yogi, I mean, he just goes way out there. And he also explains a lot of the things that Jesus said that Jesus himself didn't explain. Because now consciousness is becoming more subtle and the world as a whole can receive this. And we're just at the beginning. We're just at the beginning of the age of energy. You know, then comes... um, 
What is the third age? But yes, but what does it represent? Energy, uh, consciousness, consciousness. And then the fourth age is, is spirit, spirit itself. And in this age we dissolve space, and in Treta Yuga they dissolve time. I don't know what that means. But space now, think about how we just go all around the world and we can communicate at great distances and we can look at each other at great distances. Space is not an obstacle. What does it mean when time is no longer an obstacle? Does that mean that we can just go from here to another country without having to bother with that 13-hour plane flight? Yogananda talked about space travel through means that people haven't yet figured out that will solve all the problems that people see now about the, the time factor, which is such a difficult issue in traveling long distances through space. Master said there's yet undiscovered realities that people will find that will just make that not an issue. And there will be lots of exchanges between different uh, planetary systems and so on. You know, these are all just things that will come. And then at some point, it will reach its, its peak. And then, like everything, you know, summer doesn't last forever. It just begins to turn into something else. And then what happens is the planet gradually loses the understanding that it had. And people can vaguely remember a time when they were wiser than they are now. But it's the nature of losing that touch with that that you no longer know. Now, because we're in a Dwapara Yuga ascending, Yogananda came with a mission that he really wanted to plant in the world, one that he wanted to broadcast to everyone. And even you see globally, like religious orders are just losing ground every day. The, the uh, monasteries and convents that used to be just bustling hives of hundreds of postulants and novices now have a few aging monastics and almost no new vocations because people no longer think. And this is nobody's doing anything to anybody. It's just the consciousness of the planet no longer makes people feel that they have to choose one or the other. Because there's sort of this thought that, well, we can spiritualize what we're living in. We don't have to reject it in order to be deeply spiritual. This doesn't obviate the necessity for renouncing the ego. But it does say that it's not required to turn your back on the whole world in order to have a spiritual life because the whole world is becoming more subtle. Don't misunderstand me. You can't just kind of hang out on the planet and wait till it advances and do nothing on your own. Because if the planet becomes too refined for you or too gross, you won't incarnate here anymore. You don't belong to any planet. You belong to the planet that has the vibration that's the appropriate one for your consciousness. So that's so the yugas are essentially the backdrop against which individual the process of individual self-realization takes place. And when someone asked Master, um, do we always incarnate on the same planet? He said, oh no, there's many planets you can go to. And then he said, if you always came back to the same one, you would learn too fast. <laughs> I mean, what does that mean? Like, what are the other planets like? Swami once had a dream. I've tried to put this in my book, but it didn't make it. I'm going to try to put it in next time because I thought it was so interesting. It, um, he dreamt that... Uh, uh, a, a group, a little committee came to him, this was in his sleep, a little committee came to him from some other planet. And they wanted him to come and be a, a world teacher for them. And he was moved by their sincerity and the difficulty that they'd had in coming all the way to reach him. And he was uh, seriously considering their request. 
But then he realized, oh, I'd have to learn a new language, a whole new culture. <laughs> and he just felt he just really wasn't up to it. And so he told them he was very sorry, but he couldn't do it. And then he woke up. And I, somehow I feel like there was truth in it. And Swami, although he won't endorse it entirely, neither does not reject it either as being untrue. Um, so, and I wonder, you know, like, would he have died? Would he have been able to just use whatever process they used to get to him for him to get to them? I mean, it just left so many intriguing questions. But it also just sort of lays out that concept that there's so much more going on. And now, the whole concept of the yugas, is a very, there's a very important aspect to remember about it, which is it is an as, astronomical phenomenon. It is not astrological, but it's astronomical. It's a physical phenomenon having to do with our earth and what Sri Yukteswar declared was that, that our earth, our sun, has a dual and that our sun goes in an elliptical orbit held in place by its relationship to this other sun and whatever planets are attached to it. And the nature of that orbit is such that our whole system moves closer and then farther away from the central energy point in the system that we are operating in. And when we're closer to that central energy point, then more energy comes to us and the whole planet is more enlightened. When we move farther away from it, then there's a, a dim- diminishing of energy and the, co- the overall consciousness of the planet um, becomes less. And then this whole cycle takes place and this whole cycle takes 24,000 years. 12,000 moving toward it and then 12,000 coming back down and then moving back up again like this. Now, these are all facts that Sri Yukteswar posited in last in the 1800s. It, the tradition in India is actually that this is Kali Yuga going down for another 400,000 years, and at the end of which it will suddenly pop into the highest age. Um, Sri Yukteswar declares that this is a total misunderstanding, miscalculation, that is the result of the fact that it was Kali Yuga, and people got so confused. In fact, they trace it back to the point when the, seriously, they trace it back to the point when the Pandavas gave up the throne and went off to the forest and all their counselors went with them, which was the beginning of Kali Yuga, when Krishna incarnated, Krishna incarnated for the transition point between Dwapara Yuga and Kali Yuga, the same transition point we're in now, but it was descending. And part of what happens in the Mahabharata is that Krishna sets new rules of conduct, which are less noble than the old rules of conduct. And he says, we have to behave this way, this is Kali Yuga. For example, Yudhishthira, who was the first of the Pandava brothers, who was known for his absolute integrity and never telling a lie. He was said to be so pure that his chariot was always two inches off the ground. That's how it was described. And there was a certain point at which one of the leaders, one of the warriors on the other side against the Pandavas was just wreaking havoc with the forces of good. And Krishna said, he, 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 we, we must stop him or he's just going to decimate our troops here. And the only thing, the only way to stop him, because he's so powerful, this is, was Drona, who was the guru, the the warrior guru of all of them, he taught all of them how to fight, is that if he thinks his son is dead, then he will lose heart for the, the fight. And his son was named Ashwatthama. And, they, and Krishna said, but he won't be easy to trick. And so we can tell him that his son has been slain, but he's going to demand it of you, you just there, because he knows that you're the only one who would tell him the truth. So you have to tell him that his son Ashwatthama is dead even though Ashwatthama was not dead. 
And Yudhishthira says, Krishna, how can you be counseling me to tell a lie? I've never told a lie in my life. He said, evil is very strong in this age, and sometimes you have to bend the rules a little bit. So they, they had an elephant that they christened Ashwatthama, and then they slayed it. And then when they told Drona that Ashwatthama was dead and Ashwatthama refused to believe them that it was a trick and he demanded that Yudhishthira come and tell him, Yudhishthira came and declared to Drona that Ashwatthama was dead. Then under his breath he said, Ashwatthama the elephant. (laughs) But Drona heard that his son was dead and he laid down his arms. And then the, the forces of good were able to triumph in the end. And it's said that at that moment, Yudhishthira's chariot hit the ground, and from then on it rolled along on the ground. <laughs> and at another point in the proceedings of the Mahabharata, uh, Arjuna had taken a terrible oath because his, his own son had been uh, slayed by trickery. And so he swore, Abhimanyu was his son, he swore that to avenge the death of Abhimanyu, he would slay the ones who were responsible, and if he didn't succeed before the sun went down in slaying them, then he himself would withdraw from the battle. But of course, he took this oath in public, and the people that he vowed to slay did, you know, just stayed away from him for the entire day. He wasn't able to reach them. And the sun was going down, and so it was just about sundown, and so they were not so nervous anymore, and they came out from hiding, and then Krishna held the sun in the sky and would not allow it to set. And so then their guard was down, and so then Arjuna was able to slay these nefarious people, and that way keep his vow and keep himself in the battle. But everyone else cried, foul, foul. You know, Krishna held the sun in the sky. The sun was down. Krishna says it's a new age. It's a lower age, and the rules are different. Very interesting, isn't it? In, in, in a previous time, Lord Rama was supposed to have lived in the golden age. And at the very end of Lord Rama's wife, life, a, the way the story is told, a fishwife was heard scolding her husband in public. And it was such a, a, an absolute like desecration. Not such a thing had never happened. And Rama said, well, Satya Yuga's over a descending age now. But there was so much harmony before then, such a, such a thing could never have happened in Treta Yuga, in Satya Yuga, but now the age was descending, this was a sign, there was, dis, there was a little bit of dissension in someone's home, you know, and that's the beginning of the end of, of it, and we're going down again. So at a certain point, the Pandava brothers gave up the throne after ruling for 36 years or something, they left it in the hands of Arjuna's grandson, who was the only one who survived the whole massacre. And then all of Yudhishthira's counselors all went with him. There's a tradition in India that at the end of your life you just renounce the world and go off to the forest. Instead of sort of dying with your hands gripping everything that you've been doing in your life, you just leave it all behind before you die in order to prepare for death and, and renounce it while you're still living. And then practice yoga practice, sadhana, so that you can die with a free consciousness. In our country, we think it's just wonderful if someone dies surrounded by their family in a room filled with mementos of the life that they've lived so that they can identify with it absolutely to the last second and have it pried from their cold, gripping fingers. But the real idea is, at a certain point, you just say, enough, and just walk away from it. So at that point, when Yudhishthira and all his counselors and wise men left, Um, The poor lad who was left on the throne didn't have any wisdom anymore. And at that point, they say, an aberration set in and they lost contact with the true understanding. And they just went into Kali Yuga and they misread various things and 
made this declaration that it's going to go on for 400,000 years more. But Yukteswar came and corrected that. And it was very, very controversial in India, and even still is. I mean, we're, we don't know. The only thing we know about this is from Yukteswar, and we say, sure, well, gee, why not? But if you read an autobiography, Master makes a point of, of validating all of this and arguing for it because it's controversial. And you see, it, it completely informs how you relate to the world and especially what kind of spiritual work you do. Now, how all of this relates to the book we're talking about here is that Swamiji is trying to establish the fact that all of these symbols, there's, there's two meanings to, to how it relates to this book. One is that there was times when this knowledge of the nature of the universe, which is what we're actually going to talk about next week, you know, what is the nature of this revelation, when the revelation of the nature of the universe and the nature of human happiness and how spirit descends into the world and how we're supposed to live, which is common knowledge. Everybody knew. When Swamiji and I were once talking about yugas, and uh, the actual conversation went, I, was, I just jokingly said something like, gee, if we all come back again, let's wait for a higher yuga. I think some just really gross manifestation of the world we live in had been brought to our attention. I said, let's, let's wait. If we're going to incarnate again, Swamiji, let's, go, let's wait for a higher age. Swami answered me immediately, I don't intend to come back at all. <laughs> he said, just like that. And... Uh, and then he said, even in the highest age, it's still the material universe and it's never our home. That's how he put it. He said, the only difference is in the higher ages, we're in charge. <laughs> Meaning spiritual people are in charge instead of the Koravas, which are in charge now. Koravas mean the, the materialistic side. The, you know, the powerful people in this world. And I'm, I'm not going to speak about our, our present president of the United States because let's just hold out great hope for him. But as a rule, in, in entertainment, in business, and so on, the people in charge are not high consciousness. They're in it for themselves. I mean, we've just been having revelations that are just appalling. Of course, it doesn't mean there are no good people on the planet, but the, the power elite is not the um, high-minded renunciates as a group. The high-minded renunciates have washed their hands of the whole system. But in the higher ages, um, highly spiritual people are universally recognized as the ones who ought to be in charge. So I said to Swami, so the whole world is like Ananda? He said, yes. I mean, that's a very pleasant thought, isn't it? If the whole planet were run the way our spiritual community is run, think what a nice world it would be, how different it would be, you know, with mutual trust and respect and all of the things that... So yes, that's what it's like. Now, from the point of view of, of the book we're working with, which is the Hindu way of awakening, Swamiji is trying to tell us that... that because India is a continuous culture and is the only continuous culture on the planet right now, uh, there are many areas of the world that have uh, legends or evidence of highly evolved civilizations behind them, the Egyptians or the Greeks. You know, we have all these extraordinary remaining artifacts. They're, very, they're still in some form of Kali Yuga because they're all big and heavy, which is why they're still there. But even today, nobody knows how they built those pyramids. I mean, Cecil B. DeMille said there were a bunch of Jews, you know, strapped with ropes, dragging those rocks up ramps, but it's not likely. You know, they, they, it's becoming apparent that they had much more subtle means of creating those structures. We just don't know what they are. Light, sound, who knows what it was. But they did something we don't know about yet. But 
But the Indian culture is continuous, and it's always been the same culture. I mean, thousands of years back, they find ancient, they find ancient artifacts that have people in recognizable yoga postures, and there's ancient texts, and, and it's always been the same culture built on essentially the same revelations following the same essential way of life. For as far back as anybody can measure, nobody can find a point at which it wasn't like that. There have been invading hordes here and there, and there have been westernized theories about what's gone on in that country, but the truth is it's been one continuous culture all the way through from very high age. Now, one of the things that Swamiji writes about in here is that those sages incarnating at different, different phases of this cycle of yugas, when the age began to descend, the masters who were in charge of the spirituality of that country, and there's always, just like there's presidents and other governments, there are spiritual beings behind those forms, just as we were talking last week about how everything in this world is not really what it seems, and it's a symbol of a deeper reality, just the way we're organized in cities and states and families and nations and governments like this. This is a model that goes onto much more subtle levels, that there are masters in charge of countries, angels in charge of countries. When Mother Mary appeared to the children in Fatima, she was the, you know, she was the special angel for Portugal, and she was relating to things that would happen in Portugal. And it was sort of part of what was understood about that was that it was about that country. There was some special responsibility um, for and against that these things are always happening. There's an odd story Swami tells about uh, that was told to him by a yogi, of um, an honest yogi, who said that the master who was in charge of China came to the master who was in charge of India said, basically, my boys are getting restless. You know, they're, they're getting feisty. They want to push. And uh, he said, they're going to need to invade India. This is the invasion that took place some decades ago. And the Indian master said, well, all right, but don't let them go too far. And so the master said, okay, they'll only go to the certain line. And so there was an invasion from China into India, an incursion from China into India. This was in the 50s. And... Uh, but they only went a certain distance, and then inexplicably they stopped. <laughs> and this was the story that was told about it. It was just these masters balancing all these forces. Now, I've lived in a spiritual community all these years, guided by an extremely enlightened leader, and I have watched Swami balance the forces. I mean, nobody in our particular community is invading any other community, but I've watched Swamiji sort of allow certain points of view or certain individuals or certain groups to sort of have their sway for a while because they need it and then he balances things and pushes that that energy back this way and then another energy has a chance to come out and all of it is just sort of based on working with the dynamic of what everybody needs in order to grow spiritually and you kind of balance one against the other and you know at what point does organization and subtlety and interaction stop or does it just go on infinitely Swami writes in his commentary about Genesis. And I believe, I, I, I wish I could say it exactly, but there's a certain point where God uses a plural. And he talks about we. <laughs> we are doing this. And uh, Master writes that, that the divine works through instruments, that you know, even creation is made through the instrumentality of very high beings. 
It's just you don't... But you see, everything in this world is symbolic and it tells us of a deeper truth. And, and that's an unequivocal statement. Everything is symbolic and it tells us of a deeper truth. It's fascinating, isn't it? Even the beauty of nature is just a very dim reflection of the beautiful beauty of the astral world. It all tells us of a deeper truth. Extremely interesting, yes? Um, so what Swami is establishing here is first that these higher ages existed and second that this truth of the Hindu religion has been carried in a continuous wave from those very high ages. And when I started, was starting to say, when the masters saw that the age was descending and we were heading down into Kali Yuga again, oh boy, here we go. Now, from their perspective, completely outside of time and space, I mean, the, the fact that it's a 24,000-year cycle, which seems just so enormous to us, doesn't mean anything in eternity. It's just, well, planet Earth is going to go into that dark period again, and we need to help those people. So they took a lot of truths that they had been able to articulate directly and often not only articulate directly but actually transfer through consciousness directly and they, they began to create more concrete ways of expressing them. And a great many of the symbols that people associate completely with Hinduism were actually deliberately created by the masters in order to... to to plant, to secretly implant that would, something that would last through Kali Yuga, that when we began to come up on the other side, more enlightened beings could then penetrate into those symbols and see what they actually meant. Because there's this interesting cycle about the, um, the circular nature of it. Wherever you are, ascending or descending, you have essentially the same knowledge as, as was going on on the other side. They, the, the pyramids were built more anciently, and we haven't quite become parallel with the, with the pyramids. But the, it's, the expectation is that when we become parallel with the pyramids, suddenly much of the secrets that are implanted there, the secrets of the pyramids, the secrets of the sphinx, we've begun to wonder what those secrets are, and we've begun to you know, use things like ultrasound and stuff like that to discover things that nobody could have guessed at before, but we haven't really unlocked it. And so there will probably be a time when we're parallel where it will simply be unlocked. Very, isn't that fascinating to think about? So it's the same with these symbols. The, the truth is in them. And so the, the story of, it's said that Beta Vyasa, knowing that the dark time was coming, wrote down the Mahabharata. And, and that through story and this continuous retelling of, the, of the, these epic tales, the entire teaching of India in the, in, the, in the Mahabharata and the Ramayana would be kept alive because people would just tell these stories and they would want to tell these stories. And even in Kali Yuga, these stories would still be told and the, and the culture would remain intact and the teaching would remain intact. No matter how clearly people understood it, they would still get it. Even Master writes in Autobiography of a Yogi that when his mother wanted to instruct him, she would draw from the Ramayana and the Mahabharata. I mean, his whole cultural and spiritual upbringing, moral upbringing, was taken from those epics. And Vyasa said, well, Kali Yuga is coming, we have to give these people something. And now, Master writes, he begins to write about the um, interpretation of these stories. And not just, well, he was a hero and he behaved properly and so he won, so you should be a good boy. 
And we know that the Pandavas represent the chakras and what each of those chakras represents. And each of those characters is a psychological quality and the whole battle of Kurukshetra is the battle of consciousness. But through much of Kali Yuga, none of that was known. It was just this gripping tale that people would hear again and again and then would become the defining reality for their lives. And so the masters were able to maintain a modicum. In the Western tradition, because those monks separated themselves so much from civilization that when the barbarian hordes came through around 500 AD and just destroyed everything, a fragment of culture and civilization was kept alive in those monasteries. Because knowing that Kali Yuga was coming, they hid it away, either intuitively or explicitly, they knew. So the point being here is that um, the, the revelation that Hinduism represents came from a much higher age, that those high truths were, were hidden behind a plethora of symbols and stories so that they would survive through Kali Yuga and people would maintain some attention and relationship to them that could not have been maintained if... Uh, it had been written more explicitly because people would have just rejected it as ridiculous. If you went back, you know, even a few centuries and carried an iPhone and told people that you could, all these things that you could do, people would probably burn you as a witch. You know, there's, there's lots of literary tales that are told. Mark Twain uh, most notably wrote some story about I can't, a man goes back in time and he knows an eclipse is coming and he manages to persuade them that he's a a magician, because he can predict this eclipse, he can make it go dark and make it go light again, because he remembered historically and knew where he was. And that's a very small example, but it's a great literary device. All right, why don't we just take a short break, and then we'll start up again. Um, we talk of consciousness, and I think I have a good, I, I know it's important to understand what consciousness means, but in talking with someone who doesn't um, accept the idea that that consciousness is different from the brain and thinking. How would you describe consciousness? How would you explain that to someone who thinks that when you die and your brain is dead, you no longer are conscious? Um, first, I would ask myself why I would be trying to explain it to them. <laughs> uh, well, the question is, can you be aware without thinking? You know, can you ever be at a point where you don't have any... Do you, when you don't have thoughts, have you ever? Been, you have to ask the person: Have you ever been still enough where you weren't thinking but you weren't aware? Even when you go to sleep and lose consciousness, you're aware that you slept. It's a very interesting fact, isn't it? When you wake up, you know that you slept somehow, even though during the time you were sleeping, you were unconscious, you were subconscious, you weren't completely unconscious because you know that you slept. It's, a, it's an interesting fact. I would just try to try to think of specific examples in their own life, but you won't really persuade, so you, you, quite seriously, you have to really ask whether they really want to know, um, because it doesn't help people to try to impose upon them a teaching they're not ready to understand. It's really better not to. If they're genuinely interested, um, that's one thing, but if they're either just looking to shoot you down or um, wanting to just combat it, it's really better not to allow them to, because if, seriously, because if people make up all the arguments as to why your teaching is wrong, it drives that ignorance deeper into their consciousness. So if they resist you, it's better not to try to persuade them. It's better to change the subject. You rarely, I would say never, I've never seen Swamiji try to persuade anybody. He'll try to be persuasive in his arguments, but that's quite different than persuading someone. 
If they're not interested, he just won't talk about it. Um, Cast not your pearls before swine, Jesus says, because it, it, uh, it reinforces ignorance. It's not helpful. Otherwise, I would try to find examples of how they can be aware without thinking. But to actually have them understand that, that there's a level of consciousness beyond the brain uh, and that consciousness is the source and not matter, it's just like you have to have some in- intuition about that before people can accept that. Is that an answer to your question? Uh, well, so would you say that consciousness is awareness? Yes. I mean, to be aware is to be conscious. I'm, I'm, I would have to think more deeply about it. I mean, there's Sanskrit words for it. But yes, to be aware. Awareness. You can be aware. You're conscious. Yeah, consciousness and awareness are similar in words. For some reason, I can't bring that to a clear focus, but I think that that would be true. Is that fair enough? Okay. Anything else? Um, you know, I, I, um, I found that, how do you say it? If people feel your vibrations you, and your uplifting vibrations, it's better than giving them your philosophy if they don't want it. I, I tried very hard to give people the philosophy they didn't want for a long, long time. And then I finally just started being really super supportive and kind and discovered that in some way they actually, I think, understood my philosophy more than when I tried to explain it to them. Because they began to get that there was some vi- uh, vibration. I mean, none of these words would have, would, were part of their story, but they got that there was some vibration happening. They were attracted to that vibration. And being attracted to that vibration, they're much more attracted to that vibration than they were to my explanation of what that vibration was. My explanation annoyed them. My actual vibration attracted them. And so I shifted one for the other and found it a lot better. And I just don't talk to those people about these things at all, ever, because they're not really interested. But I can give them a great deal of it, and then it will inspire them to, walk, to really want to know at some later date, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, any other questions? The, the next point that Swami makes through the sequence of these three chapters is basically just asking the question whether symbols are just an, a, a, a subjective projection or whether they have an inherent reality. And then he, he talks at great length um, about superconsciousness versus subconsciousness. And superconsciousness is the whole key here, which is, um, he, he describes the fact that Jung tried to make a unity of understanding among all peoples. And he talked about the collective unconscious, which Swamiji describes as an unfortunate choice of words, because nothing is unconscious. But what Jung was trying to get at, Swami's endorsing here, which is there's a shared level of reality that we're all part of. And the way the Indian revelation has always talked about this, the Hindu revelation, is that there are essentially three, um, three areas of the continuum between the, the least conscious and the most conscious. Because there's no, everything in creation, as we'll talk about as we progress, is, is manifested of consciousness. So even the rocks, as he put it, you know, are dimly conscious. Even though their self-awareness is virtually nil, nonetheless the substance of what they are is consciousness. This is where, as we advance into higher yugas, 
and we get into the level of consciousness, we begin to understand that everything in the universe, which is what we're coming to now with our relationship to trees and plants and animals, we're beginning to see that there's a shared consciousness. Whereas, you know, deeper into Kali Yuga, the idea that animals might be conscious, that there would be some shared reality between us and animals would just have been ludicrous. You know, people just slaughtered animals and used them. There was none of this sort of sympathetic vibration that we feel now. Now there's a growing outrage at the mistreatment of animals and all of those things is a a growing understanding of this all-pervasive shared awareness of which everything is a part. In Kali Yuga, we can all be, you know, we can hate the people in the next valley and we can persecute mercilessly somebody who has a different color skin than we do and we can call people you know and in this country complete fools and idiots but as because everything is separate and what does that have to do with me but when we begin to understand this shared level of humanity then all of a sudden somebody on the other side of the world may look a little different from me he may eat different foods and speak a different language but there's this understanding that somehow behind all of that there's something that draws us together. And the understanding is as we raise our consciousness above the level of mere form, which is our physical body, we begin to enter into the realm that transcends form, from which form emanates, and we begin to sense this unifying reality of light and sound and love and human feeling and kindness and that is the, the, the superconscious doorway, you know, leads us up to these infinite states of consciousness. And these symbols that, that we're talking about that are true symbols, he says, there are simply man-made symbols. There's something that somebody thinks it's a good idea and I'll put these two forms together and this is what this means and they'll be, it'll be intellectually explained, then I make the circle and then I make the line and this is what it means. Or he talks about the, what, the hammer and sickle for the Communist Party or the reverse swastika for the um, Nazis that, that a, a human mind just thinks this is a good idea. It's quite different than the actual forces coalescing into some... A perceivable reality that you can feel has higher consciousness. Last week I talked about the symbol of Ananda that Swami perceived in meditation in answer to his prayer. And he just saw that shape and it spoke to him the essence of our community. There's a very peculiar phenomenon which we've talked about a little bit which is the phenomenon of crop circles which is really a, something much more common in this world than the popular press would have you believe. And I mean, I would have, before I saw a recent documentary on it called Star Dreams. I know there's many documentaries on this phenomenon, but Star Dreams was a very interesting one. And uh, it's much more common than we realize. And these extraordinary patterns appear in fields and places, sometimes on ice. Um, Just, and they're, they're just, they come suddenly they're often massive, covering many acres. They're really not clearly visible except from the air. They're extremely complex. And the most amazing thing about this documentary that I saw is they're beautiful. I mean, really beautiful. And when you see them, they something it stirs something in you. And it was such an interesting thing just watching them on the television screen. You just saw these beautiful 
beautiful patterns and you had no idea what they actually meant. But they, they, they lifted your consciousness. They were a symbol of something. And there's all this speculation as to where they are. I mean, the most um, cogent, the most probable explanation is literally that they are a projection from some other civilization that's trying to communicate with us. And they're trying to communicate, or Mother Earth herself is trying to communicate with us. I would have called it wacky myself until I became a little more acquainted with it. But it was for me also the most interesting thing because I'm looking at, at a symbol for which I have no association. You know, some pattern of circles or lines or something like this, viewed from the air, beautifully symmetrical, and just, it says something. And it was, it was such a non-verbal communication, so clearly of an elevated nature, you could feel it all through you that it was elevated and had no idea what it actually meant except that it meant uh, uplifted consciousness. And it, it, it gave me a tremendous respect for the concept of symbols, how they can just be planted, and even though you can't verbalize it in any way, you still, there has been a definite communication takes place. And so Swamiji is wanting to make a very emphatic point in, in the second chapter that we were reading tonight, that this is not just the projection of human thought. Uh, you know, these are not just good ideas. These are actual states of consciousness, goes back to revelations. These are actual revelations of higher realities that, that advanced souls who have the revelation are trying to put into some form that people who haven't had the revelation will be able to intuit something of what they experience. So that's the main point he wants to make. This is truth. This is not imagination. This is not just putting out an idea and hoping that somebody will buy it. This is reality condensed. Now, he goes on um, to the last chapter that we were reading tonight when he calls this science, religion, what is this? You know, this philosophy, religion, science, or what, he calls it. Because the chapters after this, which we're going to read, the Hindu revelation, basically, what is it? You know, the Hindu way of awakening, its revelation and its symbols. Well, what is the revelation that the symbols represent? And then we're going to talk about the whole world view that is characteristic of the Hindu culture. But before that, he sort of talks about this philosophy of India, this religion of India, what is it? And reading through it this time, I, I really got something that I had not exactly appreciated before. Now, bearing in mind one of the aspects of Kali Yuga is that all the cultures are really separated from each other. You know, time and space provides much too much of an obstacle. Swamiji talks about a friend of his who grew up in Switzerland, and even the valleys in Switzerland, you know, for many centuries hardly communicated with each other. The mountains were too high. People just lived in these tiny little worlds. And so Asia was very separate from the West, and Africa was completely separate from, you know, the upper parts of North America. Only a few souls would venture out and um, even still today, to tell a Marco Polo is considered to be a tremendous lie because when Marco Polo went to China and then came back to Europe and told people what he'd seen, it was so outrageous to them that it was considered to be a Marco Polo. <laughs> and that's why his very name began to be synonymous with just absurd exaggeration of the truth because everything was so separated. So India and the whole culture of of Tibet and India and the masters of the Himalayas and all of that going on for so many centuries was, was very separated from the West. 
And as Kali Yuga began to give way to the beginning of Dwapar Yuga and people began to learn how to navigate the globe and learned all this, relearned all the systems that would allow us to travel from culture to culture and became energized enough to be interested in doing it. And then above all, when Christianity took hold in a certain way with that teaching that Christians had a duty to carry the, the fact of the salvation possible to souls from Christ, and certain people felt this duty to go out to the heathen and try to carry this message to them. I recently read the um, Pearl S. Buck, who is a fiction writer who spent the first 40 years of her life in China. Her father was an absolutely dedicated missionary. She writes about, he was of a generation that you will never see again. Someone absolutely convinced that it was his duty to bring the word of Christ to the heathen people because otherwise they would burn in hell. And he was highly motivated to do that. In fact, was an enormously successful missionary from that point of view. Not because he actually converted many people, but because he gave lots of people the opportunity to be saved, which is what his responsibility was. Whether they took it or not was not his responsibility. His job was to give them the chance to be saved. Well, um, a great deal of the first discovery of India and its culture and the communication of that came through missionaries because they were the ones who were highly motivated to go across and learn that culture. And even the harmonium that we play, that, that was actually, that was an instrument developed by English missionaries because they were going out, and they called it a field organ. They were going out to the missionary field and they wanted to replicate the sound of an organ and so they created this instrument. Sometimes it has little foot pedals so they could teach the heathen the hymns, right? And the Indians uh, usurped it and have, you know, adopted it, and it's become considered an Indian instrument for the purpose of the kind of devotional chanting they do, but it was actually brought to them by the missionaries who were trying to make a small organ. Um, but when the missionaries went to India, as Swami explains in here, they found this tradition of declared truth, you know, of these yogis saying, you know, the world is, this is the nature of the world, it's light and it's sound, and we are one with that. And these great rishis would declare, I am one with the infinite, I am Brahma, I am He, I am God, in essence. And the missionaries were so completely bewildered by what they were encountering, because see, one of the factors about Hinduism that it really, as Swamiji asserts, is one of the reasons why it's remained vital all these years, is nobody is in charge. And as he was saying in the, in the introduction to this book, Buddhism is neat. It was founded by one person. It has a certain system. It's even named after the founder, and in that it re reflects Christianity. Some person was there. He was notable. Everybody thought he was great. He set up these doctrines, and ever since then, everybody follows those doctrines. It's very orderly how it works. But Hinduism is just a complete mishmash. And even though there's a certain, you know, there's certain Shankaracharyas who have a certain position and somebody can be head of an ashram, you can't go to any point and feel like, now I'm standing at the heart of Hinduism. You can go and stand in the Vatican and there's the Pope. You know, and you can go to certain Buddhist organizations and you're standing in something that you can recognize. But you can never get your hands on Hinduism. It's just kind of everywhere. And there was Krishna and then there's the guy who was born yesterday 
And then there's a people devoted to this other one over here. And then people practice this. And then you have the goddess Durga. And then you have Shiva over here. And then you have the ones devoted to Krishna. They're all just part of the same picture. And then you have these ancient rishis making these unequivocal statements about the nature of reality. And the missionaries just couldn't handle any of it. None of it. And it was also confusing because Revelation started and ended with Jesus. And we have the one true teaching. And who are these people? You know? And then even more confusing to them was that they would bring word of Jesus and they would find the Hindus apparently very receptive. (gasps) Another saint! Wow! And then they would compare everything Jesus said to what their own Rishi said, find it perfectly valid, and they just were really, they loved it. But they didn't in any way feel that that meant they had to repudiate Rama, Krishna, Shiva, Durga. And, And the missionaries were stunned when the Hindus kept up their pagan ways after they'd found the true teachings. And the Indians were stunned that the missionaries expected them to. It was just such a complete, absolute not meeting of the cultures. And because the missionaries had no sense, for the most part, and certainly their overall philosophy was this, didn't have any sense of personal realization. You know, because Jesus was the only son of God who just kind of happened and had no previous incarnations, and there were even the lost years of the Bible were gone, so he never had any gurus or anything. No way, no sir. He was just totally, that was it. Never did anything to attain his, his way, was never taught by anybody, nothing, because all that story was taken out of the Bible. They just, here he is, and we relate to him, and his life and our life are just completely separate. There's no progression you see, what was completely taken out of the Bible was the, even the concept of progression. And especially from the missionary point of view, you're saved or you're not. And when you're saved, you go to heaven. You don't realize God. You know, the missionaries don't quote the, as Swamiji writes about it, the, the really mystical aspects of Jesus' teachings as an example, or of any teaching, the really mystical aspect that allow the individual to have direct access to the highest level of spirituality is very destabilizing to an institution that's based on a priesthood or a hierarchy. If just anybody can go around and you know become God-realized and have their own revelation, then what happens to the priest? What happens to the organization? It's very important for the organization to keep the whole thing in place. That's how you make it work. And Swami writes, congregational worship is really helpful to lots of people because that's their own consciousness. They can belong to this. And it does help uplift them and keep them in line. It's not an unmitigated evil. But when you have only that, and that's your concept of religion, when you meet something like Hinduism that's telling you that I am one with the infinite and you can be one with the infinite and we're all one with the infinite, it just it can't be allowed. It's not even that they don't want it to exist, it's that they just can't believe it exists. So they had to try to figure out who these people were and what they were doing, because they clearly weren't religion, because they didn't have anything to do with religion as they understood it. No system, no hierarchy, nobody in charge, no book of dogma. As uh, Swami writes, they, there was a, 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 one of the people who resisted, one of the uh, rabbis, when, they were, when the... Uh, Jews were persecuting the Christians and were trying to stamp out Christianity because it was, it was just one sect of Jews against another. It's very important to understand that. You know, this idea that the Jews killed Christ, they were all Jews and they were all fighting each other. It was just like a totally in-house problem. It's easier, more clear to say a corrupt priesthood 
did away with an avatar and forget what their culture was. But one rabbi said, look, if this is um, not divinely inspired, after a while it'll just die of its own wrongness. And if it is divinely inspired, we sure don't want to be standing against it, do we? Why don't we just leave it alone, okay, and let it prove itself? And Swamiji says that the entire Hindu philosophy has simply been that. There will be true teachers and there will be false teachers. And the true teachers will endure over time and their truth will be proven. And the false ones will flare for a while and then die out. And we really don't have to worry about it because it just works itself out. And so that's how the whole Hindu system has always worked. There's an ashram here and there's a great saint and everybody flocks to that saint because by their fruits ye shall know them. These people are feeling, getting true blessings. And then maybe that saint's disciples don't have that same power. And so they might try to enshrine the memory of that saint, but people just go on, go somewhere else because the power is not there anymore. Nobody has to tell them one way or another. People have the brains to figure it out. But the uh, missionaries felt that what the rishis were declaring was so completely preposterous that it must be just speculation. And that's how Swami writes it. And so it was more akin to, to philosophy than to religion. And so the concept of the philosophy of India, which is a phrase I must confess I myself have used, and is very commonly used, the whole teaching of India became classed as a philosophy. Because philosophy is the love of wisdom. It's not necessarily wisdom itself. It's a bunch of rishis figuring out, trying to guess. Gee, you know, maybe we're all Brahma. And when we declare that we're all Brahma and that we can be one with Brahma, we're just speculating. And that that was the whole Western orientation that kind of biased us not to understand that this was revelation. This is not speculation. And, And interestingly, Swamiji also writes that in fact... The, the, the classical Hindu approach of the rishis, the classical text of Hinduism, are more like science than religion. Because religion, as it's practiced in the West, is really mostly speculative. You know, they say we're going to go to heaven, but who knows? And there's just a lot of declaration of truth. But the scientific method is that it's proved by the experiment. So you, pr- you do these practices, and what happens to you? Do you see the spiritual eye? Do you hear the om? Do you have an expansion of consciousness? And Patanjali writes out in his aphorisms what will happen to you at, in every stage, all these things that will happen to you. You do the proper experiment, and you find out that that's exactly what happens to you. And you believe Patanjali, not because somebody said you had to, but because it's science. You do the experiment, and this is what happens. That's why Master came to America and called it the science of religion. He was trying to say that religion is a science. It's not philosophy and it's not speculation. and It's not faith. It just simply is. So he says that um, the revelation that people call Hinduism is not religion in the Western sense, but it's much more like Western science that's very um, uh, skeptical until all the facts are in and it's proved. It's just that what the facts are and how it's proved when you're dealing with inner consciousness, is simply a different method. It's not the scientific method, so to speak, is all about objective fact. It has to be like this. This is what happens. It has to be replicated. This is, it's all through the senses and objective. The science that you practice of yoga is the, the states of consciousness. But it's no less 
provable. It's just that the experiment is different. So it, w- it was very... Um, uh, what was I going to say? So it was very interesting to me because, you see, there's so many biases that we absorb without realizing that we've absorbed them. And so the philosophy of India is a very interesting one because it isn't a philosophy at all. It's a revelation of divine truth directly perceived and communicated as, as simply and as plainly as possible. And that's what we're, that's what this whole book is about, is to step into that revelation on its own terms for its own worth and, and re-appreciate it. You know, strip away, Swami writes about the ancient sort of overgrowth. And he talks about how, for example, words change meaning or symbols themselves get distorted. He uses Kali as an example. He said the original symbol of Kali was, had to do with the dance of God in creation meeting the omnipresent stillness of God beyond creation and at that point the vibrations of creation cease. Kali represents the um, force of creation. Her consort, Shiva, represents the power of God beyond that and in, in Kali's dance, she's touched Shiva. And as soon as the vibration touches the motionless infinite, then the creation is dissolved. I mean, this is what happens to us in our own consciousness. This is the end of the world. This is how the Christians began to think that the, the planet was going to blow apart. When in fact, what was really going to happen was at a certain point, the devotee in, in this creation would touch the infinite stillness and the vibration would cease and the world would end as we know it. So Kali represents that power. She touches Shiva and she's gone too far because now she can't go on doing what she's doing anymore. So in India, when you go too far, you bite your tongue like that. I mean, I, I do it. A lot of people probably do it. Oh, you know, that just sort of like, it's kind of an instinctive natural gesture. So Swamiji writes that the symbol of Kali originally was her having gone too far because she touched Shiva. And now, she, now it was over for her. But he said as time passed, that tongue got longer and longer, <laughs> more red, and it became sort of a sign of her bloodthirstiness. You know, this long, ferocious look. And he said, and those are the kind of aberrations that, that begin to... Um, diminish the revelation, just like in institutional religion. It starts out pure and then human ego takes over more and more. So he said you have to have, and this is what he's doing, you have to have the wisdom to strip away that which is wrong. And the other example which is so excellent is that the word go used to mean light. And then it gradually came to mean cow. So there's a lot of things in the scriptures that refer to what people think of referring to cows and it's actually referring to light. And so it's just like in the Christian text too, words have changed their meaning. And if you know what the original meaning is, the whole, the entire scripture reads differently. So you read about all these ancient people accumulating cows and measuring all their wealth in terms of cows and trading cows and going off and getting more cows. And, and really what the word actually meant was an expansion of light. When their herd got bigger, they were having more of an experience of the light. Simple change like that and everything is different. So all of these factors have to be taken into account. So next week, we'll read the next two chapters, which is the Hindu Revelation, part one and part two. And basically what that 
describes. That's page 91 through 129, chapters 8 and 9. And what that describes essentially is the Hindu worldview, which is really the worldview of self-realization. And it's very, very helpful for us on this path, just like reflecting on the yugas. The more clearly we can cognize this, the more, uh, I would call it, the more our spiritual life has a spine, has a solid spine of understanding that all, everything else that we're exposed to can sort of be seen in relationship to it, and this book provides it beautifully. So, that's, any questions tonight before we go forward? All right, thank you very much for sharing this evening. We'll see you next week.